Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. It's good to be back here. So I was uh, here last week. Mark had asked me to give an introduction to the Gospels. And so uh, I'm back here now to talk about an introduction to Mark because you're going to be doing a series. I just want to say that out of all of the things that inspired me this morning, it was um, Sam playing the drums inspired me most. A couple of weeks ago, I was at another church speaking and there was a drummer there. He had to be 70. And I was inspired by that as well. Uh, So seeing Sam up there, I just... You know, got the sense there is room for everyone, isn't there? Uh, not just in our congregation, but uh, participating and contributing. So, as last week, did an introduction to the Gospels, and if you were here, then you might remember that we discovered that each Gospel is unique and different, and uh, sometimes they seem to conflict with each other. So we saw that the same stories are told, but sometimes they're told in a different order or with different details. And we saw that rather than that being a problem, the differences actually help us to see what the gospel author is trying to say about Jesus. And so by reading each gospel individually from start to finish, we get this rich picture of who Jesus is and what he was on about. And instead of seeing just one perspective of Jesus, we get to see four. So today we're going to look at one of those portraits of Jesus, and that is the Gospel of Mark. Okay, we, I don't know if you remember, but last week we, all, we finished by looking at the first verse of every Gospel, and we kind of compared what those looked like. And we found out that beginnings are really important because beginnings affect the way the reader sees the rest of the story. The beginning is like a doorway to the story where the author takes the reader by the hand and says, come on this way and and let's have a look at the story from, from over here. So that's what beginnings do. So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at Mark's beginning because it's very small verse, but there's a lot in this beginning. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's how Mark starts. And maybe you've seen it in your Bible as the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Because in the first century, when Mark was writing, the word gospel wasn't a word that meant a story about Jesus. It was a word that meant good news. We know that that's the case because we've got some other writings from the first century that also use that word. And so we can look at those and and figure out how, how they've used the word. Now, two of those are particularly interesting for our understanding of Mark's gospel. The first one is this thing called a priene inscription. It's an inscription and it talks about Caesar Augustus. 
Now, he was the emperor that ruled at the time of Jesus, the time that Jesus was born. So this inscription, it praises Augustus. It calls him a god, and it says, the birthday of the god Augustus, if you could just click through that one. Yep, there we go. It says, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. The beginning of the gospel. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've just read those words. So what we've got here is Mark using exactly the same words to talk about Jesus as others have used to talk about the emperor. This is the beginning of the good news, but it's not about Augustus. The inscription also says that Augustus was sent as a saviour, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and order all things. Well, was the day that Augustus was born, was it really good news for the world? Was Caesar Augustus really a saviour who ended all war and brought order? Well, that kind of depends on who you were, who you're talking to. If you ask the elite, the wealthy rulers of the Roman Empire, well, yeah, probably. Yep, that was good news. Rome built these great roads, brought an increase in trade. There were fewer and fewer, fewer uprisings, more political stability, more wealth flowing into Rome. But how did Rome manage to end war and bring order? Well, by brutally suppressing the opposition, by heavily taxing the people that they conquered, by taking away people's land and then putting back those very same people and paying them just enough to keep them from starving, by instituting crucifixion as a death penalty for petty criminals and for insurrectionists. Do you know, do you know where Rome carried out their crucifixions? Because they didn't just do it at Jerusalem. Jesus isn't the only one who was ever crucified. No, they put their crucified criminals along the roads coming in and going out of the city. So that if you were travelling around, just a nice little reminder, don't cause trouble in this empire. Be a pretty effective deterrent, don't you think? Walking past those. That's how they brought an end to all war. That's how peace came to the empire. So the day of Augustus' birth was good news for some. If you're a wealthy Roman or if you collaborated with them, but it was pretty miserable news for most people. I wonder if we've, if we've got any Hunger Games fans. Have anyone seen the Hunger Games movies? Yep, that is just a classic. It's just classic. You've got to go and watch those movies. If you want to understand how the Roman Empire operated, go and watch the Hunger Games. And, and note, there's all sorts of Roman imagery in there. It's definitely based on, on first century Rome. 
and, and it's a really good example of how things worked. So that's the first example of the word good news and, and in the first century and how that was used. But there's another use of gospel, good news, in a writing that was also around in the first century that people were reading. And it was found in the Jewish scriptures that were being read in Jewish synagogues all across the empire. This word gospel can be found in a passage written by the prophet Isaiah. And this prophet, this spokesman of God, when he wrote, he was responding to a different empire, but an empire nonetheless, the Babylonian Empire, who were oppressing Israel and had taken the Jewish people into exile. Isaiah talks about this empire being defeated by God and the news about this defeat being brought by a messenger, being brought to the people. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the gospel messenger who announces peace, who brings the gospel, the good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God has just become king. That was good news. So two uses of this word, gospel, around in the first century. One used of the emperor and one used of God. Suddenly, Mark's use of this word, gospel, suddenly seems to have a whole lot of more significance. And it seems like kind of a dangerous word to use, don't you think? In a world ruled by an emperor who used his power to squash people like bugs, do you really want to be suggesting that there's someone else who might be bringing good news that rivals the good news of the emperor? Did I mention that a lot of scholars think that the Gospel of Mark was actually written in Rome, like right under the emperor's nose. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the good news. So this word in the very first verse of Mark, in the very first chapter, it hints of there's going to be a rivalry here between the rule of God and the rule of Caesar. Well, I can hear you thinking, I can, I can hear you thinking... I don't know, Denise, that seems like a lot to get out of that one word. Is, is that what you're thinking? Because I, I can understand that, and I'd think that too, except for the rest of the verse. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Christ. We think of Christ as if it's Jesus' surname, don't we? Come on, come on in, Mr. Christ, sit down. Would you like a coffee? Mr. Christ, Christ isn't a title. It's, sorry, it's not a name, it's a, it's a title. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. And it simply means anointed one. And who were the anointed ones in the Old Testament scriptures that Mark's readers are reading? Kings, sometimes priests, but kings 
and especially King David. Remember, Israel's most famous king who ruled over God's people back in the glory days of Israel. And many Jews in the first century are longing for God to bring a king a bit like King David, who can bring those glory days back. And here, Mark calls Jesus exactly that, Christ, King. But is it a good idea to call someone King when you're living in the Roman Empire? Not so much. Not unless you want to get crucified. Emperors don't tend to be too favourable towards people who call themselves king. It's a pretty subversive title, really. How about the next words? Son of God. What does Mark mean by son of God? Son of God is what the Israelite kings were called, especially David and his descendants. Think about Psalm 2 where God says to David, you are my son, today I have become your father. So sounds like Star Wars now, doesn't it? We're going from movie to movie because actually Star Wars has a lot of kind of Roman Empire stuff in it too. We're just moving from a republic to an empire. Go watch Star Wars as well as The Hunger Games. This is homework for next week. (laughs) See, David, he was supposed to rule as God's son, as God's representative, not in his own authority, but under the authority of God. Because God's the true king, and David is the king who rules under God. So the Son of God, for Jews, that term, Son of God, referred to a kingly figure. But here's the kicker. Son of God was also a term used of Caesar Augustus. Remember the calendar inscription that we saw a while ago? The God Augustus. Well, Roman empires, Roman emperors were considered so favoured by God that on their death, they would become divine themselves. So if they became divine on their death and their son took over on earth as the ruling emperor, then what did that make the ruling emperor? Son of a god. So, back to Mark and his first verse, his subversive writings. Mark, who's got one foot in the ancient Jewish scriptures and one foot in the Roman world. Did he mean the Jewish son of God or did he mean the Roman son of God? Because he surely knew both terms and what both terms mean. Did he mean both? Again, this is a, it's a dangerous title to attach to someone in the first century Roman Empire. Is Mark suggesting that Jesus, the Jewish king, could possibly be a rival to the Roman emperor? Because saying something like that is likely to get somebody crucified. So that's how Mark begins his story about Jesus. Mark's gospel is the beginning 
of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. You see what Mark's doing? See, Mark's readers know from the very first verse who Jesus is. They're let in on the secret. But as we move on from the beginning, it's apparent that most of the people in the story that Mark's telling, they don't know who Jesus was. Maybe John the Baptist had some idea, but the disciples don't seem to know. They keep misunderstanding. They follow him, but they don't really understand who they're following. The crowds listening to his teaching, they don't know. They're amazed at the authority of his teaching, but they don't really know who he is. The religious leaders, they certainly don't know. They get really hot under the collar, don't they? At the claims he seems to be making. But they can't seem to consider what those claims might mean, that they might point to who he is. But we know, don't we? And as we sit in our lounge rooms with our feet up on the coffee table, we get more and more frustrated with everybody else in the story. Like, can't they see who this guy is? Come on. He's the Christ. He's a king. He's a son of God. Look out, Caesar. He's coming. And you know, as Jesus begins his ministry, he seems quite worthy of this title. You read the first few chapters of Mark, the first eight chapters, in fact, they're full of these amazing things that Jesus did. He strides around, he's healing people, he's driving out demons left and right. He's calming storms, he's walking on the water, there's nothing he can't do. This man is Superman. He's Super Messiah. But every time he does something, he doesn't seem to want anybody to know. He doesn't want to advertise the fact that he's the Messiah sent from God. He heals someone and then he says, now don't tell anyone. He drives a demon out of someone and he says, don't tell anyone. So his identity seems like it's a bit of a secret, at least in the first eight chapters, from almost anyone except for God. God knows who he is. Except for demons, demons seem to have a bit more of a handle on who he is. And except for us, because we know right from the start. Finally, we get to chapter 8, and someone figures it out. Peter, he figures it out. In chapter 8, almost exactly halfway through the story, Jesus asks his disciples if they know who he is, and Peter answers, you are the Christ. Yes. Finally, we think, with our feet up on the coffee table, finally, somebody's worked it out. But if Jesus is excited that his disciples have finally figured out, he doesn't show it. Again, with the secrecy, he warns people, he warns them not to tell anyone. And then, here's the curious thing, the very next thing that he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He'll be rejected, he'll be killed, and he'll rise again. It's like he's saying, okay, now that you've finally figured out who I am, 
let me just tell you what my mission as the Christ is, what it looks like. It's going to look like suffering, rejection and being killed. Okay. Even more unsettling than this is that Jesus goes on to say, and by the way, if you want to follow me, then this suffering, rejection, execution, you know, it might be in your future too. How do you feel about that? Jesus says, I'm a king. Yep, you got that. But the way I rule, the way I'm going to defeat my enemies is through suffering. It's through being rejected. It's through being killed. And if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to follow me, then you'll have to operate in the same way that I operate. So there might be some suffering in your future too. So Jesus' mission as the Messiah, as the Son of God, is going to be carried out not through brute force like that other Son of God. It's going to be carried out through suffering. Jesus is going to achieve what he wants to achieve by suffering. This is a mysterious and difficult message to understand, isn't it? Jesus might need to run through this a few times until we pick it up. And that's what he does. That's what Mark does. Mark, puts the way he puts his gospel together, he puts it together with these repeated cycles right in the middle of Mark's gospel. And the cycles happen like this. Jesus makes a prediction about his death. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. Almost as a passing thought, he's going to rise again. But that's not where the emphasis is. It's on the suffering. So Jesus makes a prediction of his death. Somebody misunderstands. We've just seen that first one where Peter misunderstood. The disciples misunderstand in the next two. They misunderstand when Jesus says uh, he's, he's going to be killed. The second time around, they start arguing over who is the greatest. And then thirdly, Jesus teaches. He takes this opportunity, this misunderstanding, to correct how they're thinking. So the first time Peter rebukes him, uh, misunderstands, and Jesus talks about, if you want to come after me, this is how it has to be. The second time, the disciples, Jesus makes a prediction. The disciples argue about who is the greatest. And Jesus says, oh, you want to be great? Well, you have to be last. The first will be last. The last will be first. Third time around, at, at one chapter later, it just, it just keeps on going round and round in circles. Jesus makes a prediction. The disciples misunderstand. This time it's James and John. They say, oh, we want to be at your right and at your left. And again, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach and correct the misunderstanding. The third time he says, oh, really? Listen, don't be like the Romans and use your authority against people. Instead of insisting on being served, insist on serving others. That's the teaching for that third 
time around. So three times, goes through this cycle, predicts he's going to die, there's a misunderstanding, he corrects a misunderstanding. Here's what's interesting. You know what's just before and just after these cycles of misunderstanding? Let's have a look. It's the healing of a blind man. And just after, there's a healing of another blind man. Does that strike you as odd? Remember I said, Mark isn't just telling what happened. The gospel writers are doing theology, not only in the content of their gospels, but even in the way that they put the gospels together. And if we don't know that that's what they're doing, then we might miss. Anyone have any idea what's unusual about that first miracle? I've sprung it on you, I should have. But, like, you guys read Mark, right? The last week, I, I set homework. Yeah, what? There's two stages of healing. Jesus doesn't get it right the first time. Is he having an off day? Like, what? what is with that? It's the only miracle in all four Gospels where Jesus doesn't get it right the first time. He's got to go back and, and, and try again. The, the blind man says, oh, I, yeah, I can, I can see... But people sort of, they sort of look like trees walking around. And then Jesus comes back and heals him again. And now he can see clearly. It's a little bit like Peter, isn't it? You are the Christ. I can see who you are. The Christ, the King, the Son of a God, rival to the Roman Empire. But he, he sees, but he, he doesn't get it, does he? And these cycles of misunderstanding show that Jesus, that Jesus is talking about a different kind of power, a different way of being king, and he needs to correct misunderstandings. Do you know, even after these three cycles of misunderstanding, the disciples still don't get it. Even right at the end, they still don't get it. They're kind of clueless all the way through, which I find quite encouraging because I'm a disciple who's clueless at times and somehow, you know, they were still disciples at the end of the gospel. I find that encouraging. The second healing, it's quite different. The second healing, we're told immediately the man regained his sight, immediately. And do you know what he did? He followed Jesus on the way. Well, where's Jesus going? Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to his suffering and rejection and death. And the blind man, he's healed, immediately regains his sight, sees things clearly and follows Jesus on the way, just like Jesus told his disciples would need to. Let's have a closer look at that third misunderstanding. So remember I said it was about James and John? So by this time, James and John, they're pretty confident that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, this is chapter 10. He's, they've known for two whole chapters who Jesus is. Peter's let the cat out of the bag and they know. They're confident. Jesus is this Messiah. He's come to lead his people in victory to restore the nation of Israel to glory. And when he achieves that, 
And when he's now sitting on his glorious throne, ruling over his kingdom, they've just got one teensy request. Can we sit on your right and on your left when you come in glory? You see, James and John want the privileged position of vice-regent. They want to sit on the thrones on his right and on his left. What they're saying is that when Jesus becomes king, when he overthrows these Romans and begins to rule over his kingdom, when he's sitting on his throne, they want to co-rule with him and sit to his right and to his left. A little bit like that. That's Narnia. You've got to go watch Narnia. (laughs) These are the favoured positions to his right and to his left, the important positions, the powerful positions in the empire, the kingdom, the positions that will earn them admiration and respect. Can we sit on your right and on your left? What does Jesus say? He says, to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Ever wondered who those people were? I can remember reading this for the first time and thinking, well, who is? I mean, okay, it's not going to be James and John. Who who is it going to be? Like, is he talking about Moses or Abraham or what? Like, who... Because it doesn't really say, you know, Jesus doesn't say who it is. You see, Mark's telling a story. And stories don't just leave things hanging like that with no resolution. The answer is in the story. There is the answer. Here is Jesus enthroned. He wears a crown. It's made of thorns. The sign above his head announces a royal proclamation. King of the Jews. His army and his subjects are all gathered around him and his two co-regents are installed. One on his right and one on his left. Do you see how Mark uses that language to link these two parts of the story together. This is Jesus' coronation scene. This is what Jesus' kingdom looks like. This is what Jesus' kingship looks like. It looks like self-giving love to the point of death. That's what this king has done. That's how this king rules. The son of man came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is what it looks like to be a servant king. See, Mark describes Jesus' death not as a tragedy, but as a victory. In God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, the kingdom that Jesus rules over as king, in that kingdom, this is what power 
looks like. Self-giving love is the most powerful force in the universe. And this is a thread that runs all the way through Mark's gospel. It's the, the way that he tells his story about Jesus. It pits Jesus and the rule of God against Rome and the rule of Caesar. But what does that matter to us? I mean, the Roman Empire, it's long gone. It didn't survive. But Mark's gospel keeps on doing its work. As we read it, as we soak ourselves in it, as we gaze on this portrait of Jesus, we begin to see our world through his eyes and through this paradigm, through this perspective. Because in some sense, the Roman Empire is still alive and well, isn't it? It's at work every time someone or some group misuses power to achieve their own selfish ends, whether that's in global political affairs or whether it's in personal relationships. Mark's gospel is shouting at us to recognise the misuse of power, to stand against it and to operate in a different way. Because the kingdom of God it doesn't look like the kingdom of Caesar. It mustn't look like the kingdom of Caesar. Mark's gospel stands against wealthy nations, bullying poorer nations. It stands against political manipulation when that happens through shaming others, through misrepresenting the truth, or through shady, underhanded deals. It stands against domestic violence. It stands against child sexual abuse. It stands against the denigration of others who hold different views or are different than us. It demands that we protect the weak against the strong and that we do so by methods, not the methods that we see on the news websites, but with the methods that Jesus used. Because when we see Jesus welcoming sinners and extending hospitality to them, even though it got him into trouble with the respectable, when we see him challenging the religious leaders, even though he knew that they could destroy him, when we see him opening his arms to children and asking the rich ruler to give his possessions to the poor, and most of all, when we gaze into the face of Jesus hanging on the cross, we realise that Jesus, that our God, operates very differently. And he calls us to operate differently in this world as well. I don't know what power you hold in your hands, uh, in your workplace, in your family, in your community... But if you hold power in your hands, then Mark's gospel warns us to tread very carefully and to use that power very carefully. It points us to Jesus on the cross, using the immense power of self-giving love to change a broken world. And it warns us 
don't you go the way of Caesar. Don't you use his methods. Don't you try and gain control by bullying, by manipulation, by deceit, even if that looks like the most expedient way to get there. We can't do good by using the tactics of evil. Jesus' death looked like a defeat, and yet it was his crowning glory. It was the way that salvation, that peace, came to the world. Do you see what God did with two bits of wood and a few nails? Do you see what God did through a man, his son, who walked the way of the cross and refused to stray from that difficult path? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings the gospel. Those bleeding and torn feet, how beautiful they are. And this is just the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging picture this is that we have before us. What a challenging gospel this is for us in our everyday lives. The story of something that happened so, so long ago. And yet we see it playing out in our world today. Whose side will we choose? Which king will we follow? Which methods will we use? Lord, would you open our eyes to the message that God, that you have for us in this gospel? I pray, Lord, for Windsor Road as they sit here in this community as the members of this church sit in the circles of their influence I pray that you would help us all to love broadly and deeply in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.